Hey everyone, and welcome to Avatar, the podcast. I am River Person, Booster Greg, and joining me, unsurprisingly so, is also River Person, Acorn. Hello. Want me to sing you a song? River people don't sing songs. <laughs> everyone knows that. That's up to the nomads, the wonderful, wonderful. I, I'm okay. So, in case you didn't know, we're going to be talking about the episode, "The Cave of Two Lovers," or as we like to call it, "Secret Tunnel." <laughs> I love this Secret Tunnel. <laughs> if I were to pick my favorite episode that made me just feel good inside, it is this episode, at least so far. Yeah. So far. Uh, yeah. I've watched this one probably five times. I am not exaggerating. I've watched it to the point where I can fall asleep to it and wake up and I know exactly what's going on and exactly the line. <laughs> and it just it just makes me feel so warm inside. So I hope everyone else has really enjoyed watching this episode with us because, man. I, I enjoyed it so much. Yeah. If I was a river person and I ran across some nomads, mm -hmm. you can be sure I would drop everything mm -hmm. and go with them because that looks like a fun life just wandering around the countryside singing songs and hanging out it looks like a fun life unless you enjoy rational thought <laughs> that's the only drawback but i kind of feel like it's just it's just him you know yeah. the rest of them don't really say much so yeah well yeah i mean just be him. we'll we'll get into it as we go but for sure there's a very interesting dynamic going on with the whole team avatar in this one um <laughs> before we dive into the episode i know this episode's going to be released a little bit later than this news that we have right now but i'm just very excited about it so i just want to talk about it and thank everyone Ooh, okay our youtube channel has hit over yes. 100 followers so what that means is our link is no longer youtube.com slash XTL23ZX, like whatever. <laughs> yeah. It is now youtube.com slash avatar the podcast. Yay. So thank you everyone for following. If you haven't already, well, that was your link youtube.com slash avatar the podcast. That is where our Angmail videos have been uploaded. Uh, I know that we've been releasing them here on the feed as well. So in case anyone yep. just prefers to listen on the drive home or anything like that or at work, we got you covered. And that's going to continue to kind of be the case as we move forward. So thank you again, everyone. Blows my mind. Blows my mind. Never thought we yeah. would get to 100 followers. And people are commenting on the videos, too. That, too. That especially. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The engagement has just been, been mind-blowing. So thank you all for leaving such nice thank comments you. and wanting to... Tell us how much you're loving the Angmail videos. Yes. All right. I'm, I'm going to stop stalling because I really can't wait to talk about this episode. So <laughs> let's do it. Book two, episode two, The Cave of Two Lovers. This episode was written by Joshua Hamilton and was directed by Lauren McMullen. You guys going to be done soon, right? We've got a lot of ground to cover if we're going to make it to Amashu today. Sokka drifts aimlessly on a large leaf as we watch Katara and Aang practice waterbending. Katara slumps in annoyance and turns around to address her relaxed brother. He isn't even really clothed, so he's clearly not ready to go anywhere himself. <laughs> when she brings up this fact, Sokka informs the group that he could be ready in two minutes. Seriously, whenever. 
this right here is what I was talking about in the last episode where he just doesn't really care. He's in this depressed state, I think, still. Yeah, he's almost like on autopilot. I don't remember if I said that in so many words last episode, but you really do see it. Like in the past, he's been like ready and raring to go at any point. I think this, this is actually the first time aside from the Avatar state where we've seen him lounging. You know, usually he does something. He's cleaning between Appa's toes or something along those lines, something productive. But here he's just relaxing and floating on the leaf, which, I mean, that is a good life. I could use some of that. I know, right? Yeah. I I think uh, we've seen him in the past. If he's not sleeping, he's doing something. So we have seen in one episode, I think it was the beginning of season one or book one, where he's like still sleeping in his little... uh, what do you what do you call it? Sleeping bag. He's still like in his yep. little sleeping bag, and he they're just like, "Come on, wake up!" And they have to like throw water on him or something like that. But yeah. if he's awake, he is active and he's thinking and he's trying to do something. We haven't really seen him. You're right, lounging around like that. So I I in my head canon, that's still him, kind of like depressed over what happened with UA and and all of that. I accept that head canon. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Mm. All right. So Katara and Ang resume their practicing as Ang attempts the octopus stance. Katara notices that his form is a little off and slightly adjusts Aang's arms. This reminded me of, of when someone's learning how to play golf, when you have like that romantic scene between two lovers who like <laughs> one's form is off and you put the, their arms around in an embrace and the other one gets red and is like, oh, I really like this. And the other one's like kind of oblivious to the fact that this is the like, you know, really blushing kind of moment. What's interesting in Hollywood anyways, I have found that it's usually the female that is or like the yeah the female that is blushing during this part and the male that is like the strong like oh yeah my arms yeah. and i am the man and blah 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 whereas i'm gonna learn you a thing i'm gonna woman. learn you a thing with golfing <laughs> and in avatar it's the other way around it's katara who's adjusting his arms and ang is sitting there blushing and, and almost embarrassed and loving yeah, every second I, of it i do appreciate that gender role flip yeah uh because I mean, we've seen that trope in romantic comedies and romantic movies like ad nauseum at this point. Yep. I'm sick of it. Yep. But here it's sweet. Here it's nice because not only is Katara his master now, his waterbending master, but she's still his crush. And so it's this dynamic of they're sharing this experience together. He's learning how to bend this new element with her, guiding him along the way. But then they're also bonding. They're also building feelings for each other at the same time. And so... I I actually appreciate that little moment because it leads into the rest of the scenes that we see later in the cave of two lovers because it kind of hints at how much they've bonded with each other and Aang's growing feelings for her. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's see what you got. Katara assumes an offensive position while Aang combines eight water whip-like tentacles that surround him. His water tentacles are ready to go. Katara throws shards of ice at Aang, who manages to defend against the attack and manipulates one of the water tentacles to grab Katara's leg. The exercise ends, and his master, Katara, remember from, you know, I'm so excited that she's his master, because... I know, me too. It's just so, it's so wonderful. Um, Anyways, so Katara notes that Aang makes a fine octopus as her pupil puts on a goofy face and surrounds himself <laughs> in a water bubble and now looks almost exactly like an actual octopus. Like a bulbous, round, yeah. goofy octopus. And he's making these little like, whoa, like these like arm movements. Yeah. It's so funny. 
The gang's attention is then drawn to the sound of a dramayan or dramayan. And I looked up the pronunciation of this because I was like, oh, what is this? very good. So uh, dramayan, just everyone knows, is like a, I think it's like a Chinese uh, lute. So that's, that's what they've been using. So they hear the sound of this lute off in the distance. A group of nomadic musicians approach Team Avatar from the woods. They are singing a song about a traveling girl in heartbreak. And I, I love this song. So I love all their songs. I'm going to say it when every time they it's sing. Same. They're, they're same. just so good. They're like right up there with the beats from Doug for me. Yeah. It's like fictional musicians. Yep. They're on the same level. They're just great. Yeah. I, I think I just love the mentality behind the music and how perfectly it matches the group and their dynamic. Yeah. So the, the, the nomads come out of the woods and you just hear one of them say, hey, river people. Chong, who is the man playing the Dramayan, says excitedly, seeing the gang playing in the river. When Katara corrects the musician and says that they aren't river people, Chong becomes confused. Aang tries to help by saying that they are just people people. And Chong smiles and says, aren't we all, brother? Oh, my God. <laughs> the voice of Chong is D. Bradley Baker, who does the voice of Appa and Momo. It's the same guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He does not sound like the voice I've heard him yeah. use, yeah, he's, which he, is weird. Like, he doesn't sound like his normal voice, even though it is a normal voice. Does that make sense? Well, so I think he's doing a Chong impression from Cheech and Chong, which also this character is loosely oh, okay. based off of as well. Yeah. I was like, that has that can't be a coincidence that they're acting like hippies and his name is Chong. Yep. And it turns out that it's not. So to kind of run off of that, yes, Chong and Moku were Mike and Brian's ancient Asian version of hippies. Mm -hmm. And I found this really fascinating because when doing acting reference for Chong for the animators, Brian donned a large manila envelope for a hat <laughs> and played his and played uh an Irish bozuki. Which that was my new instrument that I had no idea existed. Interesting. Come to find out, Irish bazookis are really cool. They're kind of like guitars, yeah. but it's like a, I think the description is it's like a banjo guitar. Okay. So it's somewhere in between. And what's cool about it is, I guess, the pitch at which it's played can be heard a lot more easily in a group. And so it's really helpful for being an accompanying instrument. Because it doesn't drown out a person's singing voice and it doesn't get lost with the other instruments. So I, I watched I, some really cool YouTube videos. I wonder if that's what Chong busts out later in the episode, like much later when the badger moles show up because he pulls out another instrument. That's a great point. He does. That later was on. very banjo adjacent, at least, I would say. I am going to look that up and let you know later when yeah. we get to that part. Yeah. So anyways, the man introduces himself and his wife as Chong and Lily, and they identify themselves as nomads, happy to go wherever the wind takes them as he rocks out and wails on his dramai. And he's like, <laughs> that's so good. Very Bill and Ted-ish. And I, I super yes. appreciate that. Ang excitedly tells Chong that he is also a nomad. Chong smiles just as excitedly and tells Ang that he's a nomad, too. I know you just said that. Aang says blankly. <laughs> I love that exchange so much. Oh, I'm a yeah. nomad. No way. I'm a nomad. I I know. You do. That's why I brought it. No way. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so good. So good. Chong's attention is brought to Sokka, who is watching the encounter in his underwear. When Chong compliments the tidy whities 
Sokka hides himself with Momo and Crab walks off the screen. This is the second time that Sokka has been humiliated for wearing a piece of clothing. The yes. F- not humiliated. So Sokka views it as being humiliated, but I don't think the intent on either of them. We talked about it with Aang in... Um, that was in the Kyoshi Warriors. Kyoshi Warriors, thank you. Yeah. Aang was like, hey, nice dress. And that was it. He meant it very like, honestly. And I think, honestly, Chong meant the same thing here. He goes, hey, no way. Nice undies, man. And Sokka's yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I forgot it was my underwear. And just like gets embarrassed and runs off screen. Somewhere in the Earth Kingdom, we join Iroh and Zuko, who are trying to adjust to life on the run. Zuko complains about how he can't live like this and how he wasn't meant to be a fugitive while Iroh stares at a single flower in front of him. Zuko stops for a moment and asks what his uncle is doing. Iroh explains that the flower is either a rare white dragon bush that makes tea so delicious it's heartbreaking, or it could be the poisonous white shade. We need food, <laughs> not tea. I'm going fishing. Zuko yells and walks away while Iroh continues to stare at the bush and weighs the risk of making a tea out of the flower in front of him. So remember when our adventure started mm-hmm. and Katara, Sokka, and Aang went off together with Appa to go to the Southern Air Temple and really to go up to the North Pole. But, you know, we made a lot of stops on the way. And I made a comment about how it's so cool to see these young people in this world know how to forage and camp and survive mm-hmm. and all of these things. Well, we'll we're kind of seeing the other side right. of that here. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Iroh and Zuko are struggling just a little bit well, and they're making it by. But a lot of the nuance, a lot of that knowledge that I feel like the rest of the Avatar team would have, they're kind of trying to pick it up in the moment. Yeah. And it makes sense, too, because even though Zuko has proven himself to be a very capable warrior, he's never been on his own. He's always had things provided to him. And same with Iroh yeah. so far that we've seen anyways. Like we, we can assume that Iroh's maybe roughed it a little bit along the way in his, in his many years of living, but yeah. he's definitely not used to it now. And, and I would equate Zuko's attitude in this scene to that of a spoiled brat who's living off on his own cut off from his parents for the first time. He has that same attitude where it's like, Ugh, I'm not meant for this life. This is terrible. I can't be on the run. Look at my feet. Like that kind of yes. like attitude. Right. Um, so I, I found that a very interesting contrast to what we've seen Zuko be so far, which has been right. nothing but serious and prepared. And um, I don't know, like, well, not well-spoken, like assertive, assertive, but like, evenly tempered except in the case except when he's in front of the avatar and i feel like i mean we talked about this last episode too in the avatar state when we first see this metamorphosis for for zuko because he's out of his element yeah he's forced to acclimate to this new situation and he's also being reminded of the fact that it's been three years since his banishment so he's kind of off his track here yeah his projection and so i feel like a lot of this is him coming to terms with that as well as just dealing with the simple things that you have to do when you're not living on a ship which is like forage and survive and find shelter and all of these things i yes and i i also think that like he's lost his purpose too at this point yes and so he's also unraveling especially this is the first episode that we have him in where he is completely not focused on returning the avatar to his father to restore his honor and pride 
that's out the window. There's no way that is going to do anything now. So it's very interesting to see how he's kind of handling that. Uh, Before we move on, I want to talk about the white dragon bush Mm -hmm. and some details I found out. It is a rare flowering plant that grows in the Eastern Earth Kingdom. And once it was plentiful, but the flower has now become a rarity due to overharvesting. Its leaves and flowers are famed as a tea-making ingredient, as Iroh indicates here. And they are said to produce a tea so delicious it's heartbreaking, as he says. So because of that, it's been overpicked and it's highly prized by makers of fine teas. The white dragon bush grows naturally in forested areas where there is an abundance of shade. We rejoin the gang as Appa is getting his fur braided. Chong is casually strumming his dramayan, and almost everyone is vegging out around Appa and enjoying the vibes. Sokka walks up to the group, and Aang tells his friend that he needs to hear some of the nomad stories. It seems like they've been everywhere. Chong corrects the young airbender, or the young arrowhead as he calls him, and <laughs> tells him that they haven't been everywhere, but where they haven't been, they've heard about through stories and songs. Aang says that the nomad group can take them to see a giant nightcrawler, one of the other nomads wearing a white robe with pink lining named Moku, continues to say that there is a waterfall that creates a never-ending rainbow on the way. I like Moku's voice a lot. It's very soft and very, Me too. Yeah, very comforting. Very soothing. Yeah. Speaking of not being soft or soothing, Sokka chimes in and says... Look, I hate to be the wet blanket here, but since Katara is busy, I guess it's up to me. Katara shoots a dirty look at her brother as Lily continues to braid her hair. I love that so much. (laughs) Katara is like, don't ruin this. Well, she's not only like, don't ruin this, but she's also like, I'm not always the wet blanket. It's like this like double kind of like, how dare you? And I just, I love that little look she shoots him. Sokka continues to tell the group that they need to get to Omashu with no more sidetracks, no worms, and definitely no rainbows. Aww. I know. But the rainbow. But the rainbow. It, it's never ending. <laughs> that means it'll just be there later if it never ends. Okay, fair. We can see it later. It's fine. It's always there. The traveling nomads share a little bit of their philosophy with Sokka and tell him he needs to worry less about where he's going and focus more on the going itself. Oh, Ma shoo, <laughs> Sokka says in that read my lips sort of way. Katara speaks up and agrees with Sokka. They need to find King Bumi so Aang can learn earthbending somewhere safe. Sounds like you're headed to Omashu, Chong chimes in as Sokka smacks his forehead <laughs> in frustration. Chong goes on to tell the group that there's an old story about a secret pass right through the mountains. Katara asks if this story is real or a legend. To which Chong replies, oh, yeah, it's a real legend. And it's as old as earthbending itself. I love Chong. He's so good. (laughs) It's a shame he's only in this episode. It is. It's so bad. I know he's referenced later on, but this is the one and only time we get to see Chong and Lily and Moku and the two dancers that don't have a name. It's kind of like Pirate Barker O, right? Yeah. Where he he was like a one-off character, but then he was brought back a second time. Right. Almost like a treat. I really wish they just treated us again because he it's so good. <laughs> Before we go on, I did see there are very much visual similarities between Chong's string instrument mm-hmm. in this episode and the Irish bazooki. Interesting. So I'm thinking it makes sense, right? Because if Brian was dressed up 
um, just with like a manila folder on his head yeah, yeah. and acting out the different scenes using his actual Irish bazooki. Mm-hmm. Some of those some of that style probably came through with the animators. Oh, yeah. I, w- I would imagine so. Because they Cause use, they're using reference. Well, yeah. They use that reference so heavily, especially on something as intricate as um, playing a guitar or a stringed instrument, for sure. Like that, yeah. Th- that's probably the most challenging thing you can animate. Yeah. 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 With the, the hand motions and the positioning mm-hmm. and, and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's something that has always like fascinated me and like tickled me. The fact that Brian actually took the time in one of their studios to like act out different scenes from the show because I'm sure during the the story writing they come up to a scene and they're like, "Ooh, yeah, we can do it this way." But then to really make sure the animators get the point, they mm-hmm. would act it out and record it. <laughs> so like in one of the featurettes I've seen, there was um remember that one scene in The King of Omashu when Momo's reclined and he's like licking a piece of fruit next yep. to him? Yeah, yeah. Ryan acted that out That's really funny. on a couch. <laughs> Katara asks if the story is real or a legend, to which Chong replies, oh, it's a real legend, all right. And it's as <laughs> old as earthbending itself. Chong, Chong. Chong begins to pluck his Dramayan and begins to sing a real legend. Forbidden from one another, a war divides their people. And a mountain divides them apart. Built a path to be together. Yeah, I forget the next couple lines, but uh, then it goes. Secret tunnel! Secret tunnel! I can't help myself. Through the mountain. Secret, 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 secret tunnel! Yeah. Sokka crosses his arms and tells the nomads that they'll just stick to flying. After all, they've dealt with the Fire Nation before and they'll be fine. Aang adds that Appa hates going underground anyways, and they need to do whatever makes Appa most comfortable. Which, a side note, as a pet parent myself, I feel that vibe 100,000 percent. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Which makes me really... It's sometimes silly how much I think about my dog's feelings and comfort. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. When when I'm snuggling one dog and the other one's just staring at me and I'm just like, I'm sorry. So I got to snuggle them for equal time. And then then the other one looks at me like, how dare you? So I just do this like snuggle back and forth for like at least a half an hour trying to give everyone equal attention. Yeah. Anyways, we get a quick cut to Team Avatar trying to fly to Amashu and being bombarded and overwhelmed by the Fire Nation forces. Slightly singed and defeated, we cut back to the nomads and Sokka says, secret love cave, let's go, as they walk past the nomads. That's such a quick little part that completely gets the point across, but it's just like so well done. Well, it's easy to miss too. The first time I rewatched this episode, I was like, wait, why don't they just fly like five minutes like further into the episode? When I rewatched it here and I was like, oh yeah, because it's just like literally... 15 20 seconds of yep nope we got yeah. this we're just gonna fly oh nope not gonna fly all right let's go secret love cave here we are i feel like it's even shorter it might even be might like be. five or ten seconds yeah. it's definitely a um if you're binging it and you're on your phone you're gonna miss this part for sure yeah back with iroh and zuko zuko returns to his uncle victorious within his fishing with an anchovy question mark it's the smallest it's fish. so teeny it's so teeny it's not even the size of a pen I'll put it that way. And it's, it's at the end of this like super I long know, stick yes. too. <laughs> this exaggeratedly long stick. And it's just like, boop, 
right at the end. <laughs> Iroh is still slumped over the same plant, but if you're watching closely, you'll notice that the flower is missing. Yeah. When he asks if Zuko remembers the plant that he thought might be tea, Zuko realizes what his uncle has done. When Iroh turns around, we see that he is covered in a rash from head to toe. Zuko is a little disturbed at the sight of his uncle, who goes on to tell him that when the rash spreads to his throat, he will stop breathing. Iroh then excitedly tells his nephew that the stick he was using to scratch his back with will either <laughs> cure his rash or leave him blind. And it's not the stick itself. It's the berries. But yeah, yeah he's yeah. just like, here's I got this. It'll do A or B. Oh, man. No big deal. No big you deal. You know, just it, I'll, I'll either be fine yeah. or I'll be dead. Yeah. It's okay. It's, it's these things that make me kind of like start to question Iroh. Like even me, who's been like, all this time be like no he's always doing this purpose there's a reason for his madness stuff like that and i'm like you just wanted that tea and now not ignorance but it's pride i think where he doesn't want to go to a doctor or anything and also maybe a little fear itself i'm going to jump into a headcanon here yeah. and say they've probably been on their own in the wilderness for at least a couple days now and so they've been away from comfort and when you think about it the last place we saw them in was the spa. Right. So they were getting pampered yep. and treated. Yep. Iroh probably had incredible tea. And now it's been a couple of days. He's gone without tea. Mm -hmm. And now mm -hmm. he's presented with these things. And while he is knowledgeable of them, he knows they exist because of his, I guess, pampered upbringing and his position in the military and in the royal family. He hasn't had to actually put that knowledge into practice right. and go and pick something, for instance. And so he's like, you know, screw it. I want tea really bad. I'm going to chance it. Yeah. he 50% chance it'll be okay. He, he, he definitely likes his tea, but I think it's also a need for feeling like some sort of normalcy in this time, yeah. like having some sort of control. So I think that's why he took the risk. Ultimately, it's just kind of like he needs to just feel like himself. And tea helps them do that. Yeah, exactly. Here's a fun fact, too, about the berries that are on that branch. Mm -hmm. He calls them, um, I think, maca ole yep. or maca ole. And I found out this is really fun. The writers thought that maca ole meant without sight in Hawaiian, hence the name of the berry, because it can make you blind. But as it turns out, it actually means eye tooth. <laughs> So the translation was a little <laughs> off. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so Zuko snatches the branch from his uncle and tells him that they are not taking any more chances on these plants and they need help. Iroh reminds Zuko that they are enemies of the Earth Kingdom and fugitives of the Fire Nation. So they don't really have anywhere to go. Zuko thinks out loud for a moment. If the Earth Kingdom finds them, they will be killed. Iroh continues off of that train of thought and says that if the Fire Nation discovers them, they will be turned over to Azula. They pause briefly and then look at each other. <laughs> the Earth Kingdom it is. Let's take our chances with death versus Azula. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> How far are we from the tunnel? We rejoin Team Avatar as Sokka yells that. Actually, it's not just one tunnel. The lovers didn't want anyone to find out about their love. So they built like a whole labyrinth. Chong corrects Sokka, who is displeased at this new information, but the nomad assures the young water tribe warrior that they'll figure it out. Lily, Chong's wife, tells the group that all you need to do is trust in love. According to the curse, 
Sokka stops in his tracks after hearing the word curse and does that like Mr. Crocker from Fairly Odd Parents. Like when he does that like Fairy Godparents and he does this like these quick like convulsions and then the yeah. rest of the group just kind of like walks past them and approaches the cave and he's like curse. Yeah. I love it so much. <laughs> When Sokka asks for more information about the curse, Chong tells them that the curse says only those who trust in love can make it through the caves. Otherwise, you'll be trapped in them forever. And die, Lily adds. Very helpful, yeah. Lily. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And die. Suddenly, Chong remembers the rest of the song. He stands <laughs> in front of the entrance and with one strum of the lute, he sings... And die. And die. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite parts of this episode. It's such an epic shot because it's like from the ground looking a little bit up and it's him facing the abyss, like the dark abyss that is the cave. And he just yep. does a single. Oh, I love it. I love so much about Chong in this episode. It's just absurd. <laughs> Sokka yells that they are definitely not going into the cursed cave now. But when Moku points out the smoke in the distance, the group is reminded that the Fire Nation is hot on their trail. And they need to move. Aang turns to Chong and gets the reassurance that all they need to do is trust in love and they should be okay. That is correct, Master Arrowhead, Chong says. Aang looks at Katara, her hair blowing gently into the wind, her eyes sparkling in the sunlight. We can make it. Ooh! Ooh someone has her. a cross. Oh, less than three. I love it. <laughs> less than three. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know what that means, it's, it's the little it's carrot the in the three that, yeah, makes a heart. Three. On the keyboard. Yeah. I'm like using my hands as if you can even see that, but it's fine. On the keyboard. It was a good effort. I tried. Good job. I tried. I got half of it. I just can't yep. get the three. <laughs> Anyways. Everyone into the hole, Sokka yells as the group makes their way past some demonic looking statues and into the darkness of the cursed cave. And it's a good thing they did because the Fire Nation shows up like seconds later with those tanks from the Northern Air Temple episode and decide to close off the entrance, convinced that the Cursed Cave will take care of the group. After all, haven't you heard the song about the cave? That's such a great detail. I love it so much. I appreciated that yeah. so much. Also, because they have a shot that's fairly long where it shows the Chinese characters above the entrance to the cave... Just wanted to point out that those Chinese characters translate literally into the lover's cave. That makes sense. It's really cute. I just really like all of the parallels between the legend and what's going on between Aang and Katara and kind of what's also going on internally with Sokka. Because, oh, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Because, oh, I'm sure... Man, that's something that we don't actually see in this episode unless we look in the background and really study Sokka's face. But mm. you're right. He's probably thinking with all this love stuff about Yue. Yeah. His aggravation is only escalated, I think, by that fact. Right. So and I, I also truly believe and I think I'll probably reiterate this at the end of the episode that the events of this episode help him move on. Just kind of hanging out I with Chong and the Nomads and just real, who are really confronting him. They're really bashing him in the head every step of the way. Uh, well, he's really bashing himself in the head, literally. But, you know, <laughs> uh, through this idea of like love and conquering and all, conquers all and all of that stuff. And he doesn't want to hear it, but they're still forcing him to hear it, kind of making him confront his own feelings. This might just be me like superimposing what I do onto him. But 
he doesn't want to deal with that right now. It's not a convenience for him. He doesn't like he'll just do it later when it's a little easier. But they're like, no, you're going to confront this now, Mm -hmm. even though they don't mean to do that. They're just a bunch of traveling like hippies, essentially. But still, that's how I kind of looked into it. Appa begins to freak out a bit with the door being blocked and wildly claws at the rocks that now block their way out of the cave. Katara tries to comfort the air bison, but isn't too effective since she is a little anxious about the situation as well. Sokka takes charge and tells the group all they need is a plan. Sokka notices that Chong has lit a torch that looks similar to the candles that the machinist used and asks how long they last. Uh, about two hours each. Chong says, staring into the flame. And we have five torches, so that's ten hours, Lily says, as she lights up literally every single one of their torches at the same time in one swift movement. (laughs) Sokka quickly grabs them and stomps out the flames. It doesn't work like that if they are all lit at the same time. Sokka then says he's going to make a map to keep track of exactly where they've been, and they should be able to get out soon enough. This is like a throwback to the fortune teller episode when he was the voice of reason yeah. in the village. He he does logic and reason. He doesn't handle being the voice of reason too well. Like no, he can't articulate when he's right and he knows he's right. Other than to say, "I am right and I know I'm right." So, and it's good that he he takes charge. But we'll find out while in the fortune teller episode, there was uh, some wait for him to back his claims. With the cave, that's not necessarily so, at least at surface value. Yeah. Some um, might say you'll have to dig deeper to find that meaning. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, forgot to mention, shortly before this, when they were first entering the cave, yeah. when the Fire Nation closed it up behind them, there are, you notice those huge statues they walked past? Yeah, so when I first saw those, I thought they were like, my note was like, you see demonic versions of the Fire Nation. Because that's what I read it as. But then I realized that those statues were probably not made then. They were probably made around the time of the two wars. Yeah. 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 I found out that they are wolf bat statues. Oh. But they're like anthropomorphized. Yeah. So they look like demon soldiers or demon warriors, I guess is a better, better term. Um, yeah. So it makes sense. If they were built at the time the the caves were first created, because I imagine the badger moles and the wolf bats would have been there the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're in the dark, like if you all, all you have is a couple torches lighting your way and these things attack you, they might seem like demonic soldiers, Yeah, which I think would only add to the propaganda against the other side. Right. Oh, also scare tactics. Yeah. Put yep. those things at the entrance to your caves and people are going to think differently about going in there. <laughs> it's like. Haven't you heard the song? Yeah. Haven't you seen the statues? Yeah. If if you give the enemy some sort of guided form, your imagination is going to take over and superimpose that guided form onto. Yep. Like a, it's just a, a wild animal out there. But if you say, oh, like like mermaids, right? If you say that this is a mermaid, this is a beautiful woman with a fishtail, and it's really a manatee, when you see it and you're delirious, you don't really know what you're looking at, you're going to go, oh, yeah, that's Ariel for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are brought back to in Earth Kingdom Village, where Iroh is being treated for his rash, while Zuko sits nearby wearing a straw chingasa. I think that's how you say it. Careful. It's Ooh. it's like the Raiden hat, essentially, kind of, like a straw. Yeah. Um, careful not to show his face for too long. The girl treating Iroh kind of pokes at Iroh a little bit and tells him that they must not be from around here 
since everyone knows not to touch the white jade. Never mind, make a tea out of it and drink it. I love how he's just like, "Ah." (laughs) (laughs) my mistake. Song, the girl who is treating Iroh, tries to make some small talk and asks where the two are traveling from. Zuko nervously confirms that they are travelers, which doesn't really answer Song's questions. Song asks if they have names and Zuko introduces himself as Lee and his uncle as Mushi. Iroh does not seem to appreciate being called Mushi and continues off of Zuko's terrible lie and states that Lee was named after his father, so they just call him Junior. Song introduces (laughs) herself and invites the pair to dinner at her house. Zuko tries to decline the invitation, but when Song states that her mom makes too much roast duck, Iroh accepts the invitation almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Of course he does. Yes. Especially because it's duck, remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The very first scene we see him in, he's enjoying a bowl of roast duck. couple things. Uh, I'm going to say this way too late again because it's just what I do. Do you know who does the voice of Moku? I do not. Derek Bosco. Who? Brother. Bosco. Brother. <gasps> of, as far as I can find through my research. Okay. Brother of Dante Bosco. That's awesome. He will also resume another role, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't made it to book three yet, but he does play another role later on in the series, which is another okay. one one in, one and done pop-up. We'll bookmark that, yes. and I'm sure revisit it once we get there. Other than being known as a, a Bosco brother, he has also been in The First Purge, and I remember that web series, The Guild? Oh, yeah. He was also in that. Okay. Um, song is voiced by Kim May Guest, who is Mei Ling from Metal Gear Solid series. She was in Code Geass as Nina Einstein and Sayoko Shinazaki. So she's done a couple of different things. That's Uh, awesome. Lily is Lorraine Newman, who is Nana and Miss Janeth from Troll Hunters, the the Netflix um, animated series. Oh, okay. I don't think I've seen that. It's, It's pretty good. It's pretty solid. Pickles' mom from Metalocalypse. So this is the third <laughs> cast member from Metalocalypse that we've seen. Also has been in Fairly Odd Parents and is the mom in As Told by Ginger. <gasps> oh, yep. I loved that show. Yeah, that, that, was, that was a pretty good one. I was more of a Fairly Odd Parents guy myself. In case you couldn't mm-hmm. tell from my many references in this episode to it. Back to more fun facts. Mushi means ignore in Japanese, at least according to Google Translate. So I, I typed in Google Translate mushi in japanese and it came out with ignore but it can also mean bug insect or worm depending on its kanji so was originally used for to reference every kind of animal including humans as well so it kind of has this like three-layered approach you can either mean ignore him he's like a worm bug insect whatever or it could be like naming someone guy just like he he just doesn't like any of those um, representations of the word. So he's just like, oh, yeah, this is Junior really rubbing in like the insult because I he's see. been disavowed. Zuko. Yes, I see. Oh, that I love that. If that is a little Easter egg based on the Japanese language, then yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Just um, a note for those who aren't familiar in Japanese. The meaning of a word comes from the kanji that is used to spell it. So there are oftentimes situations where one word will have one kanji for a sound or a word, and then there will be another kanji that means the same thing. But depending on where you use it, it adds like extra meaning to a word or even a name. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I guess it depends on how it would be spelled because we see Mushi in Roman characters with the subtitles M-U-S-H-I. Mm-hmm. But I guess it depends on how they would spell it in Japanese. Yes. Also, before we move on, it's a very small thing in this scene, but I love how throughout the conversation, Song keeps smacking Iroh's hand away from his itchy yeah. rash. <laughs> he like goes to itch and she'll smack it away and yeah. keep talking to Zuko and then do it again and again. Well, it's like she's used to it because she probably deals with that a bit with children, yes. not with older men, I would imagine. Because Yeah. And if she doctors people, I'm sure she's used to this. Oh, yeah. Well, like I, I imagine that this is just their poison ivy is kind of how right, I like interpreted exactly. it. Yeah. Team Avatar isn't having quite the same luck as the prince and his uncle as the group keeps on running into dead ends. Something isn't right here. Sokka has been mapping their route the whole time and they shouldn't be hitting so many dead ends. Chong tells Sokka that they don't need a map. All they need is love. Aang chimes in and agrees that love is important, but he wouldn't mind a map either. Sokka stares at the map and paces around. Suddenly, he realizes what's been going on. The tunnels themselves are changing. As soon as Sokka tells the group, the cave itself begins to rumble. Dun dun dun. Day has turned to night as Iroh and Zuko join Song and her mother for dinner. I'm so I'm gonna call her mom Melody because Aww, she doesn't have a okay. name. And I can't resist just naming her that based off of her daughter's name is Song. And also it's 50% my podcast. I can 50% do what I want. <laughs> I support you, Greg. Thank you. Now I can do it. We learned at this meal from Melody that they were refugees and that Song's father hasn't been seen since the Fire Nation raided their farming village and took all of the men. I just want to quick hold on a minute to that thought. Based on what Melody is saying here, I think that the Fire Nation goes to Earth Kingdom villages and forces the men to enlist in their army and navy, which which we talked about this earlier in book one. We were like, why are there different uniforms for different like the fight? It's the Fire Nation army. Why is their uniform different from one scene to the next or one episode to the next? I wonder if they get these like in men that are enlisted that they're getting the hand-me-downs or they're getting some sort of um, uniform that is marked as different. So when you're out there in war, you know when you're a Fire Nation soldier who your true allies are or not. Okay, yeah. You know, on that topic, I did go back and find, I I remember saying during that recording that I couldn't find anything, but then lo and behold, I found the the answer or the meaning. Uh, So yes, those kind of brutish, ruffian-looking Fire Nation people Mm -hmm. on the ships manning the catapults are in fact mercenaries Mm -hmm. that were hired for that, which is why they looked very differently than the Fire Nation soldiers. But, you know, you bring up a good point because so far in Imprisoned, we see the Fire Nation rounding up earthbenders Mm -hmm. regardless of gender and taking them away. What do you think they're taking these Earth Kingdom people for here? Well, for here, it's men specifically. They only took men. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I honestly think it's either manual labor or they're recruiting them to be soldiers against their will. That, that's the only yeah. thing I can think of. Because like in the past, if you're only recruiting men, at least as far as I know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, it's usually for one of those two tasks. It's either because they need to fight or they need to like be enslaved and make like things for you and like mine precious materials for your side. 
And the fact that we don't yeah. see a prison camp anywhere nearby, granted, this is not their home village. They are refugees, but like you would imagine there would be some mention of like a prison camp or something. But now it's just off into the night. They're all gone. Right. Exactly. So, and I the Fire Nation would not take a bunch of able bodied men right. if not for a self-serving reason. Right. Like a labor camp or soldiers or something like that. Yeah. I'm sure historically there have been times where during a war, one side will enlist people from an, a region or an area and force them to fight yeah. in exchange for like, I know, we'll send supplies back to your family or whatever reason to get them to or, help. Or we'll let them live. You have to fight oh, and we'll that. let them live. Like something as easy <laughs> yeah. as that, as simple as that. Yeah. So that's kind of my headcanon is that Song's father was kidnapped um, or taken against his will by the Fire Nation to fight for them. And that's, that also might be yeah. the difference between having a, a skull mask and not having a skull mask, potentially. Right. So back with back at the uh, the dinner table, essentially, Zuko tells Song that he hasn't seen his father in many years either. He is careful to keep his answers vague as to not alert the nice mother and daughter feeding them. So when Song asks if his father is fighting the war, Zuko simply replies, yeah. I mean, technically true. Yeah. He's kind of leading one side of the war, but he is fighting. Yeah, he is. The, He's not war. lying. He's not being dishonest. Uh, something that we see here, too, that I want to point out is, you know, we've talked a lot about the cultural influences in the in the world of Avatar and how inspiration has been drawn from many different Asian cultures. Well, I want to make a note that Song and her mother are wearing hanbok, which is a type of traditional Korean clothing in mm. this scene. The hanbok is a traditional Korean dress for semi-formal or formal attire during traditional occasions, such as festivals, celebrations, and ceremonies. It's characterized by vibrant colors and simple lines without pockets. Although the term literally means Korean clothing, today hanbok usually refers specifically to clothing worn during the Joseon dynasty period. Huh. So there's your little fun fact there. Interesting. I like how they they really do just kind of... um combine a lot of different cultures so seamlessly into one and it definitely is if you're not paying attention you're going to miss it kind of deal um because like i i interpret their house as being very japanese inspired Mm -hmm. and yet they're wearing i mentioned last episode how mike and brian went to that uh chinese architecture park and took a ton of pictures and i know for a fact some of those pictures were used for this village in particular yeah and if you remember I was saying how that architecture park was specifically architecture from different eras as well as different cultures. So I believe there would have been also Japanese style architecture along with the Chinese because it's in China. So the mom, I'm going to I'm going to get this right, right. Nip it right in the bud right as we talk about her. The mom in this episode or Melody, as I'm calling her, uh, is voiced by Barbara Goodson. And has voiced Takashi in Akira, was the voice of Rita Repulsa from Power Rangers. <gasps> Rita Repulsa. Oh, goodness. Has been in Hunter x Hunter, JoJo, and Clone Wars. Okay, awesome. Back in the Cursed Cave, Chong is having a little bit of a meltdown and yells that he knew they shouldn't have come into the cave. Right. If only we listen to you, Sokka says sarcastically. Oh, yeah, that was totally what Chong said. Katara hears a strange noise coming from the darkness of the cave, and when everyone settles down, a wolf bat 
comes out of nowhere and attacks the group. During the commotion, a torch is dropped on Appa's foot, who yelps in pain as he oh, runs, no. I know, and runs around the tunnel and bangs against the walls. With rocks falling from the ceiling, Aang has to act fast. Otherwise, everyone will be flattened. He uses his airbending to blast Sokka and the nomads to safety and rushes behind him to save Katara from the debris. Katara, Appa, and Aang are now separated from everyone else. While Sokka frantically tries to dig through the barrier with his bare hands, Chong walks up and tells him that it's no use, but hey, at least he has the nomads, which makes Sokka just like freak out even more and try to dig even faster. <laughs> He's like, no, yeah. not that, anything but that. <laughs> There's a line that, that Chong says in here where he says, uh, the caves, they are changing, which is a direct nod to Bob Dylan in the times <gasps> they are yeah. changing. Yeah. So that, I thought that was, that was fun. That was a song, right? A Bob Dylan song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they also make a reference to it in Anchorman. If you remember okay, that movie. Yeah. Where they're like, if uh, a wise man once said the times they are changing, but Ron Burgundy never heard that. That it was oh, Bob Dylan. Yeah. yeah. Back at Song's house, Zuko sits on the porch and looks off into the night. Song joins him and says that she knows what he's been through. She understands the pain of being burned from a fire bending attack as she reveals her own burn. On her leg, Zuko is starting to see what the war is like on the other side, and his views are being turned upside down. Back in the cave, Sokka and the nomads are on the move. Much to Sokka's annoyance, Chong is singing a song about not getting upset in their current predicament, and that when everything seems hopeless is when you need a good laugh. Based on the torch that Sokka is carrying, it looks like this could have been going on for at least a few hours. So I'd like to think that Chong has been singing this song to Sokka for hours on end. And that's why he just keeps on getting more and more annoyed. I, yes. Yeah. Yes. Somewhere else in the cave, Katara and Aang happen upon a rock door, which could be an exit. The two struggle to open it, but Appa takes care of it with a single charge. The door opens and everyone walks in. Katara notes that this isn't an exit, but a tomb. Aang realizes that this must be the tomb of the two lovers from the song. The pictures on the side of the tomb turn to life as we get the full story of the tale of the two lovers. This is a very impressive tomb, too. It's yes, gorgeous. Yes, and the, um, the drawings and markings on it are very similar to uh, hieroglyphs, at least yeah. I found, which is really cool. Katara kind of reads the hieroglyphs out loud as she kind of says the, the full story. And it goes into this beautiful like watercolor, yeah. uh, classic, I think classically Chinese type yep. art style. Yeah, that's, that's how I read beautiful. it. Yeah. They met on top of the mountain that divided their two villages. The villages were enemies, so they could not be together. But their love was strong and they found a way. The two lovers learned earthbending from the badger moles. They became the first earthbenders. They built elaborate tunnels so they could meet secretly. Anyone who tried to follow them would be forever in the labyrinth. But one day, the man didn't come. He died in the war between the two villages. Devastated, the woman unleashed a terrible display of her earthbending power. She could have destroyed them all, but instead, she declared the war over. Both villages helped her build a new city where they could live together in peace. 
The woman's name was Oma, and the man's name was Shu. The great city was named Omashu as a monument to their love. Yay! It's it's very um, Romeo and Juliet. Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very much. With, with a with a happier ending. Happier. Not in that happy, they both but happier. didn't die. Yes. <laughs> Only one of them died. Yeah. Yeah. And they got and a it wasn't... beautiful city that reunited their two cultures together. Yes. So, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that story, especially I with know. the way that it's narrated by, by Katara and then animated with the like ink and ink wash and watercolor drawings. Yeah. And uh, a little note about Oma's name. It's phonetically similar to Oma, which mm-hmm. means mother in Korean. Mm. So that may refer to Oma being the mother of earthbending. Katara and Aang look at each other and then look at the giant carving in the rocks behind them. It is of Oma and Shu kissing. Love is brightest in the dark. So we were talking about this, I think it was on the Discord a little bit, on the Geek Generation Discord, where anyone yes. can join. If you go to the geekgeneration.com, you can find the link there. Um, where I think you, was it you, Acorn, that had mentioned, or someone had mentioned that... Um, it's interesting that, or maybe it was a meme that was posted. It, it's interesting that the earthbending civilization isn't more ornate or decorative with their stonework, essentially, and how they are very mm-hmm. like salt of the earth and very like plain. Like they just make a box and they call it a house, and that's pretty much about it. Yeah. When that point was brought up, I immediately thought of this episode A, because I had just watched it, but B, because we have the wolf bat statues outside. We mm-hmm. have these very intricate hieroglyphs and these giant monument to the love of Oma and Shu in their yes. tomb. And it, it is very decorative. And I wonder if at some point they were more interested in the arts and, and you know, expressing themselves through this form, but have discovered that as time went on and as this 100 year war really kind of pressed on that they lost a lot of that. And now it's more utilitarian, if anything else. Yeah, that's a good thought. And I think that's it's pretty supported because we'll see once we get to the city of Basingse that it's a lot more opulent and beautiful and detailed because it's kind of tucked away from the world where the Fire Nation can't have an effect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yes, that was something I posted into the Avatar channel on the Geek Generation Discord. Uh, I found it on Reddit and they do make a great point. And they gave the example of Petra, for instance, which is carved out of the mountain. And it's this beautiful, like, construct. And when you think about it, if you are an earthbender and you can bend earth and stone around you, like, you could go inception with it and build these incredible cities. Oh, yeah. yeah. And we don't really see that. So I think your theory about the effect or the impact on the Earth Kingdom during the Hundred Year War is, is pretty spot on. and. Also, they could have been uh, more architecturally and culturally advanced uh, before the war started. Yeah. Back with Sokka and the Nomads, Moku criticizes Sokka's rational thinking and how it's gotten them nowhere. When Sokka yells that at least he's thinking of ideas, Chong chimes in and says, wait, we're thinking of ideas? I've had an idea for like an hour now and that he had no idea that's what they were doing. So what was Chong? <laughs> him so much. Everyone's spinning their wheels trying to get out of the situation. And Chong's just like, I guess I'm just following everyone. Oh, my God. Chong, please. If love is the key 
to getting out of here, then all they need to do is play a love song. Sokka slaps his forehead. (laughs) Somewhere else in the cave, Katara has a similar idea. She's embarrassed and nervous to share it with Aang, which is adorbs, by the way. It is super adorable. Because she spells out that if love is what they need and love is brightest in the dark, then maybe if they kissed, that would be the answer. Zang is surprised when Katara mentions it. When she sees this, she quickly takes it back. And they have one of those, oh, can you even imagine us smooching? (laughs) Never. Like kissing my sister. Those kind of tropes, which I cannot stand. And I'm just like, just get it over with. Just do it. Like you want, she wants to do it. You want to do it. Just like, go for it. Aang then says like the worst things possible. Like, like, I can't even imagine kissing you. I, you know what? If it's between you kissing you and dying, yes, we can kiss. That's fine. Like all that kind of stuff. And it's just like a foot and mouth moment. Yeah. Geez, Aang. You know, the Katang ship officially set sail and then Aang torpedoed it immediately. It's really funny too, because he, even he realizes it afterwards. She storms away and he's just like, what is wrong with me? So Sokka, we, we're going back to Sokka again because he's now getting a headache as he's traveling with the nomads and they sing their love song. It's been a day for poor Sokka. Let's just say that. It has. Mm-hmm. So it's nighttime. Junior and Mushi, aka Zuko and Iroh, thank Melody and Song for their hospitality and the food. Zuko leaves without saying thank you, but is quickly corrected by his uncle, which reminded me of that that scene with Zhao. Yeah, where Iroh had to remind Zuko of his manners. Yeah. So like, even though they've gotten pretty far since almost a full season ago, they still haven't gotten that far in terms of um, Zuko's mentality and his, his manners and, you know, yep. becoming a, a person, essentially. Zuko turns around, bows to the girl and her mother, and says a simple thank you in like a very soft tone. Song tells Zuko that Not all is lost. After all, the Avatar has returned. Zuko glares off in the distance. I know, he says under his breath. And it gets a little sharper again. Like this whole episode, he's been very soft with his delivery. And it just comes right back. Speaking of the worst thing to tell someone in that moment. Haven't you heard the great news? The Avatar has returned. Yeah. Don't remind me. I know. As the two walk away from the house, Zuko steals their ostrich. I'll call it what I want to call it. Zuko steals their ostrich horse thingy. Also known as an ostrich horse. Thingy, yeah. (laughs) When Iroh tells him that these people just showed them a great kindness, Zuko responds, they're about to show us a little more kindness. Iroh is disappointed in his nephew, but agrees to jump on the ostrich horse thingy. As the two ride away. (laughs) Song watches from the house, upset, but does not chase after them or yell for her mother. This whole scene, this whole thing is very anime-ish for me. Like it yeah, it does feels. have that kind of element. Yeah. It does. Yeah. I was like, I was intrigued by Song in this episode. Yeah. And I can't quite put my finger on what it is about her, but it really comes together at the very end, when she's peeking through the door before closing it, watching them ride away on the ostrich horse, it's like it's like she's not surprised to see that, but she's disappointed Yeah. before she closed the door. There's no reaction, but her eyebrows are drawn up in like disappointment or worry. And it's like, 
I don't know. That's not the reaction I would have to someone stealing like my horse. Yeah, I I think it's um this is going to be a bad pun and I, I this is the one time I don't mean it cuz it's a serious moment, but I think she's been burned before by this kind of this kind of um lack of manners or this display, yeah. right? I feel like with Song and her mother, they show a lot of great kindness to a lot of strangers and they just always take advantage of them. So I think this is just confirming that this was going to happen again. Also, forgot to mention this. How sad is it that they always make too much roast duck because, now follow me on this one, I think the mother does it on purpose in case the father comes home one day. So when he comes home for dinner, yeah, yeah, when he comes home for dinner, he'll have food, a warm meal. Oh, no. Yeah. Greg, that's heartbreaking. (laughs) I I don't mean to laugh, but like... Song actually says... Mom always yep. makes too much roast duck. Yep. Oh my god. So hopefully no one cried at that point. But like I was just well, that that dawned on me on my second or third watch through. I was like, holy crap. That that's like classic. Like I feel like that was a thing where um more in, in terms of if a soldier goes off to war and like their wife yep. just always makes them a plate, right? Or if you're mourning someone, you're in denial about it. You're always gonna set that that yeah setting. Set that place for them at the yeah, table yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, thanks for that. Yep, you're welcome. That's <laughs> what I'm here for. Bringing everyone down. <laughs> oh, gosh. I think what you said, though, about her being burned before, not being surprised. I-, I feel like it's either that or she picked up something about Zuko that she didn't let on. Yeah. It's almost like it goes back to that how practiced she was in taking care of people. Yeah. She interacts with people a lot. So I almost wonder if she's really good at reading people. And saw through Zuko's visage a little bit Mm -hmm. and sees what kind of person he is and was hoping that she would like make a connection or get through to him or give him some kindness to like set him straight or put him on the right path. And then he just, you know, continues to take and not be polite and whatever. I don't know. I just thought it was such an interesting reaction. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like. I think I too would be like, hey, bring back my ostrich horse thingy now. Hey, we fed you. What we, the heck? Jerk. You yeah, big fat you jerk. Big jerk face. <laughs> back in the caves, all kind of seems lost at this point. Aang and Katara are going to lose light at any second now. And there's nothing they can really do about it. They only have one torch. Like, I think all the other torches are with Lily, who's back with Sokka. The two look into each other's eyes. And as the torch fades, they move in closer and closer and closer. Suddenly, as soon as it turns completely black, the the ceiling of the cave lights up with thousands of glowing crystals spread out like a breadcrumb trail. The two stand in awe of the sight. Here's a question for you. Yeah. Do you think they actually kissed here? You have to finish that question. Yeah, I think so, too. I think they kissed. Yeah. Yeah. Was it a full out makeout session? No, but I think there was probably like a peck or something. Yes. Yeah. Okay. cool. Also, those lights or the glowing crystals or whatever you want to call them. Oh, my God. I love them. They're really cool. You need to know nothing about me other than I love glowy things. (laughs) I love lights and lanterns and fairy lights and things that glow in a pretty way. So I always appreciate that part of this this episode. Yeah. And I like how they glow in a specific direction. 
So yeah. they don't all light up at once. They all just kind of like show the way, which is really cool. Yes. I've actually seen someone, I don't know if this is doctored or not, but I once saw a picture of someone who had a gravel driveway and it was at night and some of the pieces of gravel were glow in the dark. And so you could see this Ooh. glowing blue path up to the house. And I was like, That's goals. Really cool. I want That's that. so cool. Back on the other side of the cave, a pack of wolf bats come charging at the nomads in Sokka, but end up running past them. Turns out that they were trying to get away from two badger moles, and they are giant. The badger moles the attack. bigger baddies. They're big. This is the first time we've seen the badger moles, too, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. In person, we've seen statues of them, like right. in Taku, when we were over there. Yeah. Um, the badger moles are such a huge part of Earth Kingdom sure. culture that we see them in different ways. But they're always kind of like the the wolf bats were at the the opening of the cave, how they were kind of anthropomorphized mm-hmm. and less like the actual animal and more like a version of it, a stylized version. Right. So seeing the badger moles here in this scene, it's like, whoa, it's a real yeah. badger mole. It's a real animal. Yeah, that was really cool. And there's two of them, too, which is in- interesting. Mm-hmm. The badger moles attack the group and Sokka is separated from the nomads. Sokka is knocked to the ground and he kind of like scuffles his way backwards and his hand accidentally brushes against the loot which was separated from Chong. And then a single note is released and the badger mole stops immediately in its tracks. Sokka takes the lute or Dramayan and starts to play a song. Hey, those things are music lovers, Chong yells excitedly. Sokka asks the nomads for help with a song since he is now surrounded by the two giant beasts. Chong pulls out another stringed instrument, which I'm convinced is that Irish banjo that you were talking about. Yeah, I'm looking at it now, and it seems like they may have combined the designs of the Irish bazooki and the shamisen, which is a Japanese instrument. Because if you notice, the second instrument that Chong pulls out, it has a shorter neck, but it still has those really, really long tuning, uh, I don't know what to call them, doohickeys. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, the things that you, you twist to tune a guitar or another string instrument like that. I am not a musician, so I do not, I'm not have either, the word for that I, in my vocabulary. I have a guitar and I don't remember. Oh, the, they're called. You want to, you ready for this? You ready for what they're called? Ready. Tuning keys. Tuning keys. Tuning keys. Okay. They are keys that tune the guitar. Tuning keys. I feel like tuning knobbies are more fun. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll accept <laughs> that. That's that's or or pegs. Tuning pegs. That could be okay, okay, pegs. That's that's the one I've heard before. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah. So like, usually shamisens have a really small body at the very bottom. They're really long necks, mm-hmm. small bodies, mm-hmm. and long tuning pegs. Well, this one has that roundish uh, body shape that the Irish bazooki has, mm-hmm. um, but it has a very similar neck and tuning pegs to the shamisen. So I feel like they may have combined the two. Oh, I'm um, sure. Yeah. 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 I mean. They're no strangers to combining cultural um, thoughts, theories, designs, stuff like that. So it's, it's par for the course for them. Absolutely. So anyways, Chong pulls out that like string thingy that's combined that, that we've now established and makes up a song about the badger moles on the spot, which kind of draws their attention to Chong instead of Sokka. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, back with Aang and Katara, they are now realizing that the crystals are how the two lovers found each other. They put out their torches, they hug each other, and Katara runs off in excitement towards the exit. Aang pauses for a moment and smiles at Katara. So he like kind of like takes in that hug. 
because they just kissed mm-hmm. in my mind. So then they're hugging <laughs> afterwards, which means that it's all okay. And they're just like, they're going to be fine. They follow yay. the crystals. Yeah, yay. They follow the crystals to safety. And Appa lets out an overdramatic sigh and falls to the ground. He does this whole, <laughs> like, he makes it such a show and a production. I love it. And he's just happy to be outside. As soon as Aang asks about Sokka, the earth rumbles, and we see Sokka and the nomads emerge from the cave, riding on top of the badger moles. Sokka asks how they got out, and Aang tells him that they did as the song said. They let love lead the way. Really? We let huge ferocious beasts lead our way, Sokka says as the two badger moles make their way back into the cave and earth bend the doors they created shut. Momo jumps over to Appa, and this is the cutest part of the season so far. Oh my gosh, yes. And just starts telling him about their adventure in his like yeah. Momo way. And Appa just listens. He gets comfortable and just listens. Uh-huh. So Momo cute. just starts chittering it's on so warp good. speed. And, and yeah, Appa like puts his arm down and listens like, yeah. 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 Oh, tell me more. <laughs> They're such good friends. <laughs> that I think someone asked us what our favorite friendship is. And yeah. Avatar. I think I'm going to change my answer to this. I think this is my new favorite. Appa and Momo. Appa and Best Momo. Bros. Yeah. Katara notices that her brother has a huge red mark on his forehead. When she asks what's with the, the mark, Chong slides into frame and says, Nobody react to what I'm about to tell you. I think that kid might be the Avatar, which causes Sokka to smack his forehead, making the red spot larger. <laughs> Once again. Yep. As the two groups part ways, Chong places a necklace of flowers around Sokka's neck and says, Sokka, I hope you learned a little something about not letting the plans get in the way of the journey. When Chong gives Sokka a hug, Sokka turns red and tells him just to play his song. Hey, good plan. They walk off and you can hear their song off in the distance. Aang and Katara both look at each other and blush a little bit. Katara, Sokka and Aang climb over a smaller mountain path to get in view of Amashu. Sokka is kind of leading this way and says, the journey was long and annoying, but now you get to see what it's really about. The destination. I present to you the kingdom of, oh my God. The Fire Nation took over (laughs) Amashu. Yeah, I love it. Oh no. Oh no. And then, and then the Fire Nation Kool Aid Man kicks in the do- the door and goes, kicks in the wall and goes, <laughs> "Oh yeah!" Because the Fire Nation have captured Omashu. Well, and that's the episode. And that's the episode. So much for that plan. I want to point out specifically. I know, right? Yeah. So much for you know, uh, Ang learning Earth bending from Boomy. Yep. Yeah. I do want to point out in that last final scene, it's it's such a nice touch how we we learned in The King of Amashu that Amashu is built on top of basically a mountaintop and mm. you can't access it without earthbenders mm-hmm. creating the I guess the bridge to the front door and then opening the front door and yep. you everything is run off of earthbending. And so in that final scene you see these almost like suspended bridges built out of wood stretching across the expanse up to the kingdom of Omashu, kind yeah. of like above the wall too so they could yep. just like hop down in and start taking over so 
very effective. Mm -hmm. Another nod to how advanced the Fire Nation culture is and in their weaponry and their tactics and and everything. So love that. Yeah. They they also remember they do have um, the hot air balloon now. That too. From the northern. I wonder if they use yeah. that as well and we just didn't see it. Ooh, yeah. actually, I love that because the hot air balloon was probably the first siege. Mm-hmm. And then the bridges were built to finish the infiltration. I think that as soon as they got the hot air balloon is when the Fire Nation could actually strategically create a plan. Because that was like the final piece mm-hmm. of the puzzle that, that they needed, which is why they were so excited when they got it. Yeah. Yeah. Level up. Not great for everyone else. Great for Fire Nation. Horrible for the rest of the world. Yes, it is. MVP of the episode, Acorn. I got to know. Who are you choosing? Oh, gosh. This one's Why do tough. I want to say Chong? <laughs> I want to say Chong, too. He's so good. Oh, gosh. Um, if not Chong, then Song, which okay. is ironic because, They're you right. know, Chong sings songs. So That can't be a coincidence that... This was a very musically driven episode through half of it, through the the A plot, right? And the B plot, which is And the other Zuko, half has, is also filled with song yeah, by the person. There has to be a connection that I'm not just making right now in my brain. I, I think I'm going to give it to song, actually, because I think even though it didn't seem to make an impact in, on Zuko very much in this moment, mm-hmm. I think it's really important for his development to interact with people, regular normal earth kingdom people in his position as the fire the crown fire prince yeah because as we're going to find out later iroh is very well traveled and he's taken aspects from different cultures and bending to enhance his understanding of the world and his own bending and i think that's essentially what's happening here with him and zuko traveling off the grid trying to evade their family and azula they're forced into these kind of common quarters with your regular salt of the earth people. And it's making those connections that I think is going to help expand Zuko's worldview. So songs, kindness, uh, compassion, her story, the way that they welcomed them into their home. I think that is going to make a longer impact on Zuko or it's going to make an impact on Zuko in the long run. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this being a huge moment for Zuko in terms of like seeing people as they are from the opposing side it we've seen the avatar world much like our world be very much a well you know like the avatar is a tool not a person and zuko views the earth kingdom as the enemy and not people yeah so it's very easy to fall into that train of thought where you're like well you know who, who really cares like they're just people who are probably have it coming anyways and to have strangers feed you and and treat you with kindness and empathy it's even though he like lashes out and steals their ostrich horse like i think that's just him kind of rebelling against the thought that his father is the bad guy because he doesn't take Mm -hmm. that we saw that last episode he didn't take that news too well yep and he's in survival mode right now which it's similar to the severity that he has on his ship which is I got to do whatever I can to succeed in my mission. Yeah. It's that same mentality here. I'm, I'm going to do whatever I can. One ostrich horse in the grand scheme of things is not going to make that much of a difference. So I'm just going to take it because it will help me get to where I need to go. Right. Right. Um, my MVP is Chong because he's amazing uh, and he's perfect. hilarious and he's great. Uh, also, so his belief in focusing 
more on the journey and less on the destination. Yes. I really, I think is going to be, I'm calling it right now. I'm calling it early. I think that's going to be the moral of the season for me. Uh, it's also, it, it is a Taoist belief that the path is I was the destination. just thinking that. Yeah. yeah perfect. Yeah. So I, I think this is going to um, set the tone much like Boomy did for book one. I think Chong did for book book two, but we'll, we'll wait and see how that goes. But I agree with it. Like, I think it's a good idea to keep in mind, not really where you're going but how you get there because that's just as important because you exactly you might think you want to go a destination and then realize because of the events leading up to that destination you don't actually want to do that anymore much like zuko did with his search for the avatar he thought that he wanted the avatar for his father's approval now he's done this journey and he can't do that anymore so what does he do yep oh i love that okay so I'm going to mark it now with yes. you having said that. Let's keep an eye out for let's that see. theme throughout this book because I think you're on to something. Yeah. I think the book's theme is it's not the destination. It's the journey. Yes. Um, I'm just going to throw it in there. That's also going to be my uh, moral of the episode, I think. I love it. We, yeah. need, we need to go with that. That yep. is it. Okay. We're going to mark it here. Also, for those interested, that is that is also a ralph waldo emerson quote oh nice. in addition to being very much a part of uh asian religion and yeah. philosophy uh, you could also pull out of if you just want to do like a a different moral of the episode i think you can also put like something about love in there too this is a very love filled episode yeah, love centric well i guess play off a cliche love conquers all um i'm thinking back to the legend of oma in Shu. yeah because even though she could have gotten revenge and destroyed the people who led to who, who were responsible for her love dying, she chose the high road. She chose love and helping people find a new path to being together and working together and living together yeah. and essentially creating a new society, a new culture or a new city. So, you know, so. Love is the catalyst for all. Or love is the answer. Love is all you need. Love is all ba, you need. It's all you need <laughs> is love. All right. Well, with all of that being said, I think that is going to be all of the time that we have for this episode of Avatar, the podcast. We will, again, want to take a moment for everyone who's taking the time to join us throughout our discussion as we make our way into book two. And man, is it. Is it getting good? I can't wait. I'm so excited. I've been I've been watching a little bit ahead. I'm not gonna lie. Only only two episodes. Though. <laughs> only two episodes. I haven't yep. been binging as crazily as uh, as I know a lot of people who listen to the show have. Uh, we also want to take a moment for everyone who's left a five star written review over on Apple Podcasts, or if or have written to us via Angamail or have tweeted at us. Remember, you can always email us directly at Avatar the Podcast at gmail.com. and you can tweet at us at Podcast Avatar. Um, we read each and every review, tweet, everything that comes in, and we are still making our way into answering everyone because there is a lot. And as we said in the beginning of this episode, if you go to youtube.com slash avatar the podcast, you can find all of our YouTube content right there, which includes episodes of the podcast, as well as the full video versions of Angmail. Yeah. Yeah. With our faces mm -hmm. and fun images and quick cuts and clips and all the great things. So hopefully that is uh, worth the wait. If you sent in 
some sort of ang mail or tweet yeah. or or whatever to us a while ago. Hopefully this is worth the wait and you get to see us react to your responses live on YouTube. Yes. And and a genuine big thank you again yes. just to everyone who is writing in because it, it does mean a lot. It literally lights up our both our days when you do so. So we love seeing yeah, it. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Um and remember if you are caught up on all the episodes right now and want to hang out with me for a little bit longer, you can do so over at twitch.tv slash boostergreg each and every Monday and Friday evening starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So we'd love to have you. We we just got a new person hanging out with us from, oh, from the podcast. Yeah, so it's a lot of fun. Uh, we could talk about Avatar. We could talk about comics. We could talk about Star Wars. We could talk about the game playing. It doesn't matter as long as we're talking together. Excellent. Mm. And you can find me, Acorn, on Twitter at AcornBandit and online at joysons.com where I create enamel pins. Coming up next time. Boomy in Chains. And all for one and one for Azula. All this and more next time on Avatar, Avatar the, the podcast. podcast. Awesome. Avatar, the podcast, is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com. 